You are now rocking with a jazz hammer. There once was a crag with loose minerals, and the name of the crag was Pinnacles. The climbs grew harder, long run outs, slow we climbed real slow. <gasps> Soon may the holds pull out, but the love for the park is not in doubt. Even if the grades we climb are low, we'll take our sends and go. While TikTok might not really be my thing, sea shanties certainly are. Hello and welcome back to The Rock Behind the Climb. I am your captain, Quintadzo, also known as the Jazz Hammer. This episode, we are setting sail into the Davy Jones locker of climbing crags and exploring the geology behind the very classic rock climbing in Pinnacles National Park, which is notorious for having questionable rock with treacherous runouts. Pinnacles National Park features an incredible array of interesting and, dare I say, mind-boggling rock formations emerging from rolling hummocky hills in an environment that can't really be binned into any category of landscape. On one hand, you have a number of streams and rivers underneath prickly oak trees giving some of the hiking trails the feel of a nice shaded forest. And then, if you continue upward into the park, you can end up hiking on thin Via Ferrata style trails chiseled into the rock, making you feel like you could be in the high mountains. And then, especially if you check out Pinnacles over the summer or on a particularly hot day, it can feel like you are in the desert in the middle of nowhere. Also, Pinnacles is home to a lot of species of raptor, or birds of prey, including the endangered California condor. So, when you visit, you have the opportunity to share the space with some of the coolest birds. Above all of that, you have these immense rock structures that range from large 100-foot walls to conical spires and domes. These reddish structures are prominent and just beg to be climbed, especially when you get up close. All of the structures are made up of this conglomeration of minerals and rocks cemented together, making for perfect-looking hand and footholds to climb on. To get rocks and structures like this, Pinnacles also had an insane geologic history that actually helped contribute to the theory of plate tectonics. However, you talk to any Bay Area climber about this wonderful place, and like 90% of them won't lead with any of what I've just mentioned. No, they will all say the same thing. Eh, the rock kind of sucks there and has questionable holds and bolts. If there is anything that the Bay Area people are good at, it's finding ways to complain about living in paradise. I mean, yes, the rock is far from bulletproof Sierra granite, but I am appalled when that is what Pinnacles is known for, because the place is immaculate. Period. In this episode, I will get into why this place is so significant geologically, and then how the eventful past created the features that are so conducive or sometimes frustrating for rock climbers. Stay with me. I do want to mention, especially for my grandparents listening, who are probably dialing my phone number right now in a panic about me climbing on questionable rock, that many of the routes have been rebolted recently and are very safe. 
In fact, when I was warming up on the teaching rock, I chatted with a woman who remarked on how surprisingly solid the rock felt to her despite what she had heard. This was not so surprising given that she was climbing on one of the most popular beginner areas in the park, where if there was ever a questionable hold, it had been pulled out by now. Okay, so Pinnacles National Park is located south of the Bay Area in California, about 40 miles inland of the Pacific Coast, near the town of Hollister. It was originally designated as a national monument back in 1908. For all you AP U.S. history students, a lot of the trails, especially in the high peaks, were carved by members of the Civilian Conservation Corps, in the 1930s, which was a government New Deal program set up by FDR. In 2013, it was finally elevated to national park status. Thanks, Obama. For decades, during all of this time, Pinnacles has been a mainstay for climbers looking to hone their climbing skills on old school routes. Crazy enough, I personally hadn't been to Pinnacles until just a few years ago, but since moving to Santa Cruz, I've been going more often. To firmly grasp the geology and significance of Pinnacles, I recently went out there with my friend and co-worker, John Stafke. John graduated with a degree in geology from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and has worked for the past two and a half years as a staff geologist at the engineering and geology firm we both work for. I don't think he would mind me saying that he is a total geology nerd. Like, for instance, this was his response when I asked him to describe Pinnacles National Park in his own words. Hey, John, so could you describe the landscape at Pinnacles National Park for me in your own words? Yeah, so Pinnacles National Park consists of these uh, spiral-shaped volcanic remains from an ancient volcano um, that is approximately 23 million years old. <laughs> I meant more along oh. the lines of like, what, just what it looks, what like, it looks like when yeah. you get there. <laughs> Classic geologist answer. It was awesome having someone else there pointing out interesting features in the rock and discussing the evidence of different formation theories. He helped give me a clear understanding of what is going on at Pinnacles, which, as you will see in a moment, is not that easy. Sadly, a lot of the audio that we recorded together came out a bit jumbled and noisy, so I'll present most of the episode. Even though his voice may not be featured a lot, I want to give him credit for his contributions. Also, special shout out to the climbing friends I met at Pinnacles, who were kind enough to talk about geology while climbing out there. Anyway, let's quickly revisit what exactly the formations and rocks look like at Pinnacles. So, from afar, you have these big, red, monolithic faces and walls, as well as thin needles, spires, and domes lining the ridge of rolling brown hills. When in the form of big monoliths or walls, the rock is fractured vertically, not really creating columns, but more like uneven slices. Also, the walls are jointed horizontally, but with much less frequency than the vertical joints. The walls and monoliths are much lower down near the creek beds. The needles, spires, and domes 
which are referred to collectively as, quote, pinnacles, are found in succession at the top of ridgelines. This means that it is rare to see just one lone pinnacle, usually see a number of them next to each other along the view horizons. Up close, the rock of the pinnacles and walls is a conglomeration of sorts of a bunch of different rocks and grains called a breccia. These can range from class that are about the size of your head to matrix granules that are not visible by the naked eye. So the big fragmented walls and pinnacles are made up of a bunch of rocks of different sizes glued together. The history of pinnacles dates back to 23 million years ago with the eruption of the Ninach volcano basically right on the San Andreas Fault. The San Andreas Fault is this huge gouge in the Earth's crust that stretches from Northern California to Mexico and marks the tectonic boundary between the North American plate and the Pacific plate. The fault is a transverse fault, which means that the two plates are sliding past each other on this margin. In this case, the Pacific plate is migrating north relative to the North American. If you have been listening to this show, you know that a lot of the rock climbing areas I have covered were formed during the subduction of the Farallon plate before the creation of the San Andreas Strike Slip Fault. But this volcano, the Ninach, erupted about 5 million years later, right on the plate margin. Geologists still don't know what exactly was the mechanism that caused this volcanic eruption. Normally, you think of volcanoes forming during the subduction of a tectonic plate, but this volcano formed afterwards. Anyways, the ash and lava formed a volcanic field that spanned both sides of the San Andreas Fault. So while the volcano is actually on the North American side of the fault, there are rocks and soils that spawned from the volcano on the Pacific side that would end up becoming the formations in Pinnacles National Park. This is where it gets crazy because the actual Ninach volcano is almost 200 miles south of the formations in Pinnacles. Since the Pacific Plate has been slowly moving north relative to the North American Plate, the rocks at Pinnacles have gotten and will continue to get more and more separated from their origin point. The unique occurrence of this volcanic field encompassing both sides of the San Andreas has had some major implications for modern geologic theory. I'll let John explain. One of the most important things geologists have gotten from um, uh, Pinnacles uh, National Park and Ninach Volcanic Field um, is a slip rate on the San Andreas Fault. Since you, you know, based on potassium argon dating, which is an absolute dating technique um, of volcanic remains, since you, you know the age of the volcano and the the distance of offset along the San Andreas Fault, you can constrain a slip rate. And with that slip rate, geologists got very useful information on confirming the theory of plate tectonics and constructing a model for how California has been shaped over time. While the actual trace of the San Andreas is a few miles east of the park, there are a few Aneshlon faults that cut right through Pinnacles National Park. 
an echelon means that they are small subsidiary faults that kind of splay off of a major fault, in this case being the San Andreas. In fact, most geologists think that one of the faults, named the Chaloni Creek Fault, was actually the main trace of the San Andreas at the time that pinnacles actually formed, meaning that it roughly marks the eastern border of the volcanic field at pinnacles. Now, when you are hiking up to the crag and cross over Chaloni Creek, you can proudly announce to your friends, We are now entering the volcanic field. And you'll giggle to yourself when you get some confused looks. Anyway, the faults in this area have a lot more significance when it comes to the structures at Pinnacles. But I'm going to get more into that in a little bit. I now want to get into the different features of the rock that govern the climbs. First, I want to talk a bit about the rock itself and how it formed initially from the Ninach volcano. So, the rock you see in the main areas of the park is basically this big mixture of cooled lava, existing rock, and ash that was erupted from the Ninach volcano to become what is known as a pyroclastic breccia. Again, this looks like a bunch of smaller rocks glued together to create what appears to be a perfect climbing wall with huge protruding holds similar to that of a gym. So, during the eruption of the Ninach volcano, you had both lava and ash exploding out of the top along with lava spilling off the sides of the main vent. Along with the lava and ash, there was also previously cooled volcanic rock built around the vent that also exploded out during the eruption, broken up into chunks that range from sand grain size to the size of your head. All of this mixed together and flowed for many miles, creating the rock which is a mixture of chunks of previously cooled rock surrounding and bound together by a matrix of volcanic ash and or lava. Now, this is a little confusing because the chunks of rock are made out of lava and can be bound together by other lava that came later. So, to hopefully erase any further confusion, I'm going to refer to the chunks as class and the ash and lava that binds them together as matrix. Alright, so we have class and matrix. From my experience, a majority of the rock you climb on is a pretty good mixture of all these ingredients, the matrix of the lava and ash, with the large and small class. This makes it a pyroclastic breccia, meaning that it is a bunch of angular chunks of rock bound together by stuff that came out of a volcano. Really, any of the rock climbing areas in Pinnacles display wonderful examples of the breccia, but one of the best is called the monolith, named for being this huge rectangular block of breccia that you can only reach the top of by scaling one of the sides. The south side features routes that have class of breccia poking out profusely, making it look like holds that you would probably find in a climbing gym. However, these holds may not necessarily be bolted in tightly like the plastic holds indoors. More on that in a bit. Taking a step back from the rock wall, you can see that there also wasn't just one volcanic event or lava flow that created the rock at Pinnacles. It is evidenced by horizontal or horizontal-ish joints that partition the different flows 
as well as marking slight compositional changes in the rock. In some of these rock horizons, the composition is mostly lava or mostly volcanic ash in others, which is why some of the rock is considered to be a rhyolite or a tuff among other volcanic rock classifications. In terms of the climbing, the multiple flow horizons lead to some interesting shelves and roofs in areas where the rock is generally less weathered or more weathered than the layers adjacent. I saw this a lot, particularly on this Discovery Wall, which is this huge rock outcrop overlooking the Pinnacles Valley, featuring most of the popular climbs in the park. Here, you can see both clear lithological changes and sections of climbs like the 5-9 rated Wet Kiss or the 5-8 rated Ordeal on the Discovery Wall, which both involve getting up and over shelves and roofs created by multiple volcanic flows. Moving on. After the eruption, the transverse San Andreas Fault kept moving northward, splitting the Ninach volcanic field into two parts, as I talked about earlier. Well, this tectonic movement caused a vertical or vertical-ish joints to form in the rock. Uh, as I've talked about before on this podcast, it is the effect of water and ice that widen these cracks to the size we see today. These vertical joints, like many vertical joints at rock climbing areas, are integral to many of the crack climbs. Back at the Discovery Wall in Pinnacles, I really enjoyed climbing the 5.6 rated Portent, which features a large vertical-ish crack. Also, the combination of weathering and tectonics is most likely what formed the pinnacle spire and pillar structures that line the high peaks. While I couldn't find a source that specifically spelled it out, John and I both agree that the pinnacles were probably shaped by tectonics, creating vertical cracks on all sides, and then water and ice slowly withering away the rock from within the joint cracks, eventually creating independent structures that were once a part of the same block of rock. Now, I haven't done any climbing in the high peaks, so I can't really give recommendations here, but the high pinnacles seem really cool since they are these thin spires ending in a point with no way of getting to the top of them without climbing up. However, when you ask anyone about the climbing at pinnacles, they don't lead with any of that. They won't mention the roofs and ledges created by multiple volcanic flows. They won't even mention how cool and unique it is to find this much intact breccia. And they probably won't even mention the spires and pillars that make up the park's namesake. No, they will most likely make a snide comment about the instability and questionability of the rock. And there is good reason for this. The perfect-looking handholds that I described earlier as looking like a gym are somewhat of a mirage where, at any second, they could potentially pull off the wall. I said it earlier, and it bears repeating, that many of the popular areas are carefully monitored and rebolted when necessary. Also, many of the questionable holds have been plucked already, leaving much of the climbing areas with solid holds. My friend Courtney made a good point, though, of mentioning that it is just the fact that the rock has this reputation 
that makes you think twice about grabbing a nice juicy handhold with all your might. The style of climbing has to be much more delicate and therefore makes it difficult. So I want to dive in and answer this burning question of why The Rock has this reputation of being so chossy. In short, it is in large part caused by the freeze-thaw action of water breaking apart the rock slowly over time, making the matrix bonds weaker. But, if you are like me and want to know exactly how this actually causes huge chunks of rock to come out of the wall, then keep listening, because I'm about to break it down. (laughs) Zing! So, to do this, I want to point out that the breccia in Pinnacles is a lot like concrete. Concrete is essentially made up of large and fine aggregate, or rocks, that are bound together by cement. This bears a lot of similarity to the breccia class that are bound together by matrix. I need to make this comparison because there isn't a lot of reliable information on the deterioration of breccia, but there is a ton of information on the degradation of concrete, and I think the two have a lot in common. There is a type of concrete degradation called scaling that happens when the cement mortar starts to recede from the surface of the concrete, thus revealing the now half-cemented aggregate. You've probably seen this on an old concrete sidewalk where it gets really bumpy because the surface is now a bunch of rocks sticking up. I'll look a photo in my photo album. Concrete scaling happens because of general freeze-thaw where the water molecules will get in between the cement particles and break them apart when the water freezes and expands. Over time, this erodes away the once flat surface to reveal large aggregate still embedded in the remaining cement. Looking at the climbing areas in Pinnacles, I see the same exact phenomenon. I see these large clasts that are exposed in the same way of the concrete aggregate during scaling, where the matrix is eroding away, thus exposing the class more and more. This will happen until at some point someone grabs onto and pulls a hold with more force than the remaining ash or lava matrix can handle, and boom, the hold pops out. That's why the biggest and juiciest holds are actually the most nerve-wracking because those are the holds that are most likely to pull out on you since they are less entrained in the slowly receding matrix. That leads me to my next point, which is that if a big clast is going to fail, the entire clast is going to pop out of the wall rather than split in half when you pull or push on it. I mean, it sounds intuitive, right? If the hold is going to fail, the whole rock is going to come out of the wall and not snap in half where the rock comes into contact with the remaining cement. This means that the clast itself is stronger in general than the interface between the matrix and the clast. But why is that bond relatively weak? Well, going back to the concrete analogy, there is something in concrete research that is called the interfacial transition zone which is just a way of saying the area where the cement comes into contact with the aggregate. I'm not going to go into any further detail on how this area of cement to aggregate contact can get weak, but I've linked a few papers in the episode notes if you are curious. 
I can't say for certain if the theory of the interfacial transition zone between the aggregate and cement actually applies to the rock and pinnacles, but what I can say is that in general, when you stick two things together, it is very difficult to ensure that the bond is just as strong, if not stronger, than the two materials you just bound. This means that in a lot of cases, the weak point is going to be the bond itself, as it is in the case of the rock in Pinnacles. Now, I bring this up because the fact that the classed matrix bond marks the failure point between the class and the matrix is a huge factor when it comes to bolting the rock. All of the bolts should be placed into matrix rather than into class because if a bolt is placed into a class, then the entire class could pop out without warning, causing the bolt to fail catastrophically, without the bolt itself even coming out of the wall. I also bring this up because at one point, my friend Keegan stepped on what looked like just some ash matrix when a huge water bottle sized chunk of rock came off the wall. At first glance, this seems inconsistent with what I've been talking about, where big chunks of rock are going to pop out of the wall where there are large clasts. Upon closer inspection though, I noticed that about half the area where the chunk broke off the wall was composed of a large clast that had broken off along the interface between the embedded clast and the matrix. Now, I hope I didn't completely scare off anyone from going out and climbing at Pinnacles, because, like I've said before in the episode, many of the bolts are under close supervision and are periodically replaced when need be. Also, many of the bad holds, especially in popular areas, have popped out, leaving mostly great holds on the climbs. It is important to know, though, that there is the potential for class to pop off the wall, so you should be taking precautionary measures like wearing a helmet while climbing out there, and checking out comments on the mountain project to see if anyone has had issues on the climbs you want to take on. In my experience, Pinnacles is not the place to push your maximum climbing grade. It is a place to focus on methodically and gracefully moving up each pitch or climb. Take in the beautifully shaped spires and unique environment. Marvel at the rock that was formed 200 miles south of where you are climbing from a mix of matrix and class. Rock that through weathering, tectonics, and multiple flows has a multitude of climbing features for any style. And then, after all of that, you can take a minute to complain about the rock quality. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was very highly requested from the time that I started this podcast, and it has been an absolute joy to make. Special shout out to everyone I climbed with out there, and to all of you listening. Making these podcasts are not that easy, especially with a full-time job and trying to climb and run on the side. But the engagement and encouragement I have received since starting this podcast has been more than enough to keep me going. As always, please feel free to give me feedback. You can email me or reach out to me on Instagram, Mountain Project, Reddit, or wherever. All of those links, along with the episode notes in my blog, are in the episode description. 
Again, thank you all so much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next one. Jazz Hammer, out.